When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Gamar Joba, and welcome to the history of Sacartvelo, Georgia. I am your host, Roberto, and this is episode 3, the Mushki and the Yawehi. Today, we're going to talk about the different kingdoms that have come out from prehistory, such as the Hittites, Assyrians, and Urartu. We're also going to cover the Proto-Georgian tribes that ended up forming the kingdoms of Iberia and Colchis, called the Mushki and the Diawehi. Since they formed the building blocks of our history, I'm quite happy to get something of a narrative going. Also, this episode comes out a little later after the proper date of May 26, but I'm going to say it anyways. Happy Independence Day, Georgia! May you live free and prosper for many years to come. We've been talking a lot about archaeology and history here on the history of Sacartvelo, Georgia. But I want to start this one off by talking about the Georgian account of the foundation of their country. Their preferred origin story relates how God came upon the Georgians after he had given all the countries of the world to all the other nationalities. Hearing music and merriment, the Lord found the Georgians in their usual festive mood, partaking in their lovely wine, delicious food, and playing music that you just can't help but dance to. After partying with the Georgians, the Lord enjoyed himself so much that he decided that the Georgians needed a place where they could be carefree and merry always. He decided that he had to give them the one place on earth that he had reserved for himself. This place, the valleys and hills that lie to the south of the great Caucasus Mountains. Of course, this is an origin story made after the Christianization of the Caucasus, but it really shows how important those traditions of singing, dancing, and drinking are to the Georgian cultural identity. They're people you just can't help but be around and enjoy your time with. We last left our show off in the middle of the Bronze Age. Honestly, I want to get started with the narrative because the prehistoric stuff, while interesting to talk about, can be a bit dry at times and doesn't make for good listening, especially when you've gone to hear me talk about it in a confused manner. So, let's power on through and get her done! At the end of the 3rd millennium BC, the Indo-European Hittite Kingdom entered the Eastern Anatolian region and began to establish their rule over Asia Minor and Syria, lasting for over a millennium, which, all things considered, is way longer than most countries last nowadays. During this period, our sweet, sweet Georgia grew up and entered the Bronze Age, with the Middle Bronze Age stretching from 2000 BC to 1200 BC. There's some evidence of considerable economic development and increased commerce between all the tribes in Georgia, which I believe is a good thing as it allows for a reason to, you know, not fight if you're relying on each other for trade. In Western Georgia and Abkhazia, we see the beginning of the Caucasus culture between 1800 and 700 BC. 
It's assumed that it's around this period that the story of Jason and the Argonauts is set. You know, when they go on their adventure and bring their Greek, open quotation, superiority, close quotation, to the barbaric land of Colchis, where we practice things such as magic and the swords. Well, no one in Colchis asks you to come and cause problems here, Jason. We'll talk about Jason and Medea soon. I have some gripes of Jason. Now, that's enough about the West. Let's talk a bit more about the East of Georgia. In Eastern Georgia, we find the Kurgan culture of Trialeti, which reached its peak around 1500 BC. We've actually mentioned them before. Recall that the Kurgan culture involves the burial of VIPs in exceptionally huge mounds that essentially look like hills. Can't beat the Egyptians, can you? Anyways, we're able to get records of the people living in parts of modern-day Armenia, which, by the way, we're going to be referencing Armenia quite a bit on this podcast. From more than 30,000 Hittite tablets archaeologists uncovered over the years, mostly in Turkey. These tablets tell of wars that have been fought by two Hittite kings, Supiluliamas and his son Marcellus I, against the tribes inhabiting their Armenian plateau. Sadly, we don't have any written records mentioning the lands of Georgia during this time, but there is a theory that the epic of Amirani, the Georgian Prometheus, may have originated from this time. We'll talk about Amirani and other Georgian myths in later episodes. I'm still waiting for books to arrive from overseas and for a few Russian translated sources. I swear, I picked the hardest topics to talk about, but it'll be worth it. Moving on to the second millennium BC, the heroes of history, our archaeologists, have uncovered plenty of evidence that sheds some light on this period, allowing us to make some inferences about culture, population levels, and some dates of events. Alas, we can't reliably identify who left it behind in terms of ethnicity or linguistic affiliation. I honestly just think it's amazing that archaeologists can do all of this and decipher what all the evidence means, including what belonged to what culture slash civilization. The good news is that some cultures, specifically the Assyrians, Hittites, and Urartu empires of Anatolia, kept detailed records on clay and stone. These can give us some insight into some of the neighbors they either fought, conquered, or vassalized, as well as insight into the existence of the precursors of today's Kartvelians, the Georgians, Mingrelians, Laz, and Svan people. Now, we'll move on to cover some of the evidence that can teach us about the Iron Age. Late in the Hittite area, in the last centuries of the second millennium, ironworking made its appearance in Transcaucasia. The true Iron Age, however, only began with the introduction of tools and weapons on a large scale and of superior quality to those made of copper and bronze, a massive change that most of the Near East civilizations may not have even experienced before the 10th or 9th centuries BC. With that, we move out of the second millennium and into the next. Starting at the middle of the first millennium BC, we finally get a way better narrative account of the inhabitants of northeast Anatolia and western Georgia, known as Colchis, thanks to Greek historians and geographers. This chronology is rather blurred to say the least, thanks to the Greek habit of lumping in observation, legend, and rumor all in the same place. I'm not discrediting anything that these Greek historians have done, and we should be thanking them for everything they have written down, 
but I'm more than sure that these historians could have used a bit more what actually happened instead of and then the gods willed it to happen. But what do I know? Different cultures, different times, and Herodotus only had accounts of first-hand witnesses to go off of, sometimes. With that said, let's finally take a look at the Hittite kingdom we mentioned earlier. Around 1190 BC, the Hittite kingdom fell because of attacks from the mysterious people of the sea, as they are called in the Greek sources, and by different Indo-European groups such as the Thracians, Phrygians, and Proto-Armenians, who came from the west into Asia Minor. There is evidence associating the Georgians with the Urartu Empire that dominated central and northeast Anatolia from the early Bronze Age to the early Iron Age after the fall of the Hittites. We don't really know if any of the kingdoms or tribal confederations that came into conflict or contact with the Urartu included the Kartvelians, but the peoples known to the Assyrians as the Mushki and Yawehi are relevant for our podcast since they formed the building blocks of the Iberian and Colchian nations, respectively. So, now that the Hittites are dispersed throughout Anatolia and Asia Minor, what happened after? The fall of the Hittites left a political vacuum that was rapidly filled by the Assyrians to the east and the Phrygians to the west. The Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser I, is an interesting character, he went on to become one of the greatest Assyrian conquerors, and he had a bit of an ego as well. He often referred to himself as the unrivaled king of the universe, king of the four quarters, king of all princes, lord of lords, whose weapons the god Assur has sharpened and whose name he has pronounced eternally for the control of the four quarters, splendid flame which covers hostile land like a rainstorm. I take back what I said about him being narcissistic. He's the humblest historical figure I know. No one is humbler than him, and he knows it. Even the god Assur knows it. Blessed be his name. Jokes aside, Tiglath-Pileser was known for his brutality during his conquests of numerous lands, and was the first Assyrian king to claim hostages, even sometimes using children as bargaining chips against the people he had conquered. Tiglath-Pileser the unrivaled king of the universe, etc., led his first campaign into the lands of Nairi, which we know as central Armenia. There, they fought against the Phrygians, whom they called the Mushki or Tabal. The Mushki occupied certain Assyrian districts in the upper Euphrates region, essentially making this nothing more than a border dispute. The Assyrians ended up defeating the Mushki and drove them to the north and the west, where they came under the cultural influence of the waning Hittites. The Mushki, who had settled in the upper Euphrates and along the Murad Sioux, were Georgian speakers from one of the Kart tribes, and they ended up forming their own state in east-central Anatolia, known in the Bible as Mosok. A little more about the Mushki, since our Kartvelians are possibly descended from them. It's speculated that the Mushki related to the spread of Transcaucasian ceramic ware, which was believed to have been developed in the South Caucasus region, suggesting an eastern homeland for the Mushki tribe. This might have contributed to the Kingdom of Iberia. The Greek historian Strabo believed that the Mushki might have lived in modern Abkhazia or in a location divided by the Colchians, Armenians, and Iberians, which is in the current-day Miskheti region. So, what influence has come from our neighboring kingdoms 
onto the Mushki. There have been traces or similarities between religion, between the Hittite and Urartu religions. The pre-Christian religion around Mizkheta worshipped a moon god named Adamaz and a god of fertility named Zadan. The Proto-Georgians share a similar name for these gods with the Hittite and the Urartu. Now, sadly, there's not much written about pre-Christian Georgia, but if I find anything relating to it, I'll make an episode and make us both the wiser for it. The most important tribal formation of possible Proto-Georgians in the post-Hittite period is that of the Deoehi tribe, which was formed around the 12th century BC in the southwestern Transcaucasian region north of present-day Erzerum. This coalition of Proto-Georgians was powerful enough to resist attacks by the Assyrians until our favorite king, Tiglath-Pileser the Unrivaled etc., captured King Sien of the Diawehi in 1112 BC. King Sien was released on terms of vassalage a bit later by Tiglath-Pileser. After this battle against the Assyrians in the 12th century, the records go quiet and we don't hear about the Diawehi tribes until a few centuries later. In the 9th and early 8th centuries BC, the Diawehi tribe was the nucleus around which many tribes of the southern Transcaucasian region gathered, and they once again became the target of not only Assyria, but of the rulers of the state of Urartu. In 845 BC, King Asia of the Diawehi was forced to bend the knee to Shalmaneser III after he overran the Urartu and made headway into the lands of the Diawehi. After experiencing a nice period of growth, the Urartu state became a new regional power, and they contained the two most powerful kings in the region had ever had at the time, Menua and his son Argishti. Without going into too much detail, because we're here to learn about Georgia, not regions outside of it, I'm sure other people will do a better job at it than me, Menua had extended the borders of Urartu considerably, while his son Argishti did an even better job at it and took Urartu to its zenith, even causing headaches for the Assyrians. Let's get back on track, shall we? The Diawehi kingdom became targets of Urartu and King Menua ruled from 810 to 785 BC, and his son, King Argishti I, 785 to 763 BC, campaigned against the Diawehi with Argishti, landing the finishing blow against King Utupurshini of the Diawehi, capturing him in battle. In exchange for Utupurshini's life, King Argishti only asked one thing, and one thing only that wouldn't cost Utupurshini anything at all, that being the annexation of all his possessions, as well as paying tribute that included a variety of metals and livestock. Nothing that difficult, am I right? Utupurshini, of course, agreed. By the middle of the century, the blows from the Urartu in the east and from the tribes of western Georgia ended up destroying the Diawehi kingdom. Now that the Diawehi are gone, how are we to continue our narrative? Well, the Diawehi weren't the only Proto-Georgians rising at this time. The fall of the Diawehi left a tribal formation named Colchis bordering directly against Urartu, and conflict was soon developed against these two coalitions. It is believed that the Georgian-speaking tribes were already in the eastern Pontus, Colchis, in the 9th century BC. Homer even mentions a Halizonis tribe in Pontus, and it's believed that this tribe is the same one as the Calibus, another Proto-Georgian tribe which emerged later. Now, it's when it's safe to say that Georgia emerged from legend into history as two, 
or possibly three district entities. One is the core of our future unified state known as Iberia, which is primarily the country east of the Leaky Mountain Range that divides rivers flowing into the Caspian Sea, such as the Kura, from rivers going into the Black Sea, such as the Rioni and the Choruk. The second, and the one I have been referencing to the most, since it appears much earlier in our narrative, is Colchis. At its largest, it stretched from the east of Trebizond to north of today's Sukhumi. Its borders with Iberia fluctuated along the leaky mountains over time. The third and last entity is Svanetia, also known as Ancient Swania, which two or three thousand years ago was bigger than today's landlocked highlands, sometimes reaching the coast. At some points, it was subject to Colchis, other times Iberia, and both their overlords. Other times, it was divided or even autonomous, thanks to Greek geographers and the fact that the Swan language has idioms figuring masts and sails, we know that they were once a maritime people, possibly inhabiting the Kodori estuary. Now that we are approaching the formation of Colchis, I'd like to stop here and leave that for the next episode. I'm quite glad to have you all on this journey with me, so let me end with these few words. I know that you have heard this before on all the other podcasts that are starting out, and you probably don't want to take a few minutes out of your day to do this, but to help this podcast grow and get the word out there is to give us the one thing we need always, iTunes reviews. Yes, if you liked or disliked the podcast, I'd love to know, and it would help get this podcast built up. Heck, you can even tell your friends about it. I would also highly appreciate your support and feedback for this project. So let me know what I do well or what I could do better. Constructive criticism is appreciated as it lets us be more interactive. If you do have anything you want to say, feel free to look us up on Facebook and Instagram as The History of Sacatevelo, Georgia, on Twitter at History underscore Georgia, on our website at historyofsacatevelo.com, or on our email at thehistoryofsacatevelo.georgia at gmail.com. Sacatevelo is spelled S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L-O. Madloba da Nachvamdis, and thank you for listening to The History of Sacatevelo, Georgia. See you next time.